If I asked you to name the world powers, you'd probably say USA, China, maybe you'd say Russia, but one country I'm sure you probably wouldn't say would be Hungary. Landlocked in Central Europe and making up about 1% of the European economy, you'd be forgiven if you struggled to point it out on a map. But if you lived in the 15th century, you'd have no excuse. Back then, the Hungarian kingdom was a medieval powerhouse, the place to be in Europe. Dripping in Italian culture, it was classy and sophisticated. It spanned almost the length of Europe from north to south. Best of all, it was stinking rich. One third of all Europe's gold came from here. And it had an army. I mean, a real army, not a bunch of farmers and cooks scraped together the night before battle. Hungary had a standing army of professional soldiers One of Europe's first since the fall of the Roman Empire 700 or so years ago. So what happened? Where did it all go wrong? Well, if we follow the trail of fallen dominoes, it takes us back to a single event. Out of all the battles Western civilization has fought, none are remembered in the same grave light as the Battle of Mohács is for the Hungarians. A defeat that was so crushing that it left a branding on the national psyche of Hungarian people. You might have heard in Texas they say, remember the Alamo? Well, in Hungary they say, more was lost at Mohács. In other words, broke a plate, more was lost at Mohács. Fired from your job, more was lost at Mohács. You get the idea. In the year 1526, on the flat plains of Mohács, the Ottoman Empire dealt a death blow to the Kingdom of Hungary. The defeat was a milestone in the ongoing war between the Christian West and the rapidly expanding Muslim East and it had far-reaching consequences for the political, social, and cultural landscape of Europe, reaching up to this very day. In just under 120 minutes, Hungary went from being one of the greatest powers in Europe to an insignificant vassal state, a little parcel of land to be tossed back and forth between empires for the next 500 years. And once it finally regained that independence, it was a shadow of its former glory. Losing almost three quarters of its land, the Hungary you see on a map today looks that way because of this battle. So over the next two episodes, we'll explore the events leading up to the disastrous battle of Mohács. We'll take a hop, skip and a jump through 300 or so of the most dramatic and exciting years in Hungarian history. Starting with a scarred and fractured land in the 13th century, watch a nation go from rags to riches and then back to rags. We'll follow the lives of brilliant leaders, heroes of Hungary, men who built their nation into a super state. Guys like Bella IV, John Hunyadi, and Matthias Corvinus. Then we'll watch some less than talented men tear it all down. Guys like King Laszlo, who everyone called OK Laszlo because he just okayed any demand anyone ever made of him. We'll see the rich bully the poor, enriching themselves at the expense of their country, We'll peer over the walls of towering fortresses and watch the armies of Islam turn from an annoyance to an existential threat. We'll watch a super state implode on itself while a hostile army gathers on its borders. And finally, we'll pity a 20-year-old boy who was hastily raised up as king and expected to turn back the clock. So pour a little out for our Hungarian listeners as we get into it. The Death of Hungary and the 1526 Massacre at Mohács, Part 1. The Raven King. It's the year 1242. A weary King Bela IV surveys the wasteland that was once his kingdom. The Mongol invasion had ravaged Hungary. Around one million people, half the population, were destitute, enslaved, or dead. The steppe archers fought in a way that no European had ever seen. They'd annihilated Bella's army and chased him into the darkest recesses of his kingdom. But just when it seemed all was lost, they'd retreated. Like the tide receding out to sea, the Mongols had returned to the steppe, rushing back to elect a new Khan following the unexpected death of great Khan Ogadai. King Bela had a thin window of opportunity and he wasn't going to miss it. His realm was devastated. Entire cities had been scrubbed off the face of the earth. But the wise king's eyes noticed the ones that were still standing all had one thing in common. Walls 
For all the advancements they'd made, the Mongols still struggled to besiege European castles. And this was to be Bella's ace in the hole. Historically, the construction of castles and fortresses was restricted by the royal court. Allowing powerful families to build fortresses posed a threat to the king's rule. After all, rebellions were much harder to quash when the enemy could retreat to their towers and just wait for you to leave. But the facts were right there. Castles had undeniably saved Hungary from utter destruction. If the Mongols returned, they had to be ready for them. And return they did. Forty years later, the thundering hooves of 30,000 steppe ponies burst onto the great plains of the kingdom. The invaders were the same, but Hungary was different. King Bela's reforms had calcified the soft green flatlands into a bristling porcupine of fortresses. Everywhere the Mongols turned, they found another castle, another keep, another wall. The days of easy plunder were gone. In the end, the invaders limped home, light on plunder. It should have been a time for celebrating. The Mongols, the beasts from the east, were beaten, never again to return in any serious numbers. But already, King Bela's fears were taking shape. High up in their castles, protected by their private army, his nobles weren't happy. Where was the royal army during the invasion? Why did we, the nobles, have to defend your kingdom? What are we paying taxes for anyway? The Kingdom of Hungary survived the Mongol storm, and King Bela IV would be remembered as the second founder of the state. But this state was built on foundations that were already starting to crack. Over the next few centuries, a string of foreign-born kings dominated the Hungarian throne. As you'll come to see, the Hungarian nobility were not too fond of foreigners. But these kings brought with them new ideas, technical innovations, advancements in mining, agriculture and bureaucracy all came from their homelands. And when Hungary embraced these foreign ideas, they entered a resplendent golden age. You know what I mean by a golden age, right? A time of good living when everyone was safe and had enough to eat. Disobedient nobles were slapped back into place by a strong central government propped up by that illustrious yellow metal that has fascinated mankind since the dawn of time. Gold. Hungary was minted with gold mines. Author Paul Lenvai says that across Europe during the 14th century, one third of all gold came from Hungary. And that's to say nothing about its huge silver reserves. By the mid-14th century, Hungary was one of the most powerful states in Europe. If everything remained static, the kingdom could have soon rivaled France in terms of wealth and might. But as history shows us, nothing ever stays the same, does it? Europe was about to be turned on its head by an unwelcome intruder to the east. In the late 13th century, a man named Osman Ghazi left behind the plains of Central Asia and ventured west. The route he took was a well-travelled one. Tales of Europe's riches had lured Turkic nomads west for centuries. But unlike his Mongol cousins who sought only plunder, Osmond and his band of warriors came looking for work. Central Asian tribesmen were renowned for their combat prowess, and given that Europe was still recovering from the Mongol devastation two centuries ago, it's no surprise that Osman and his men found work as mercenaries for the Eastern Roman Empire. You might have heard it referred to as the Byzantine Empire, same thing. From his gilded throne in Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, the Christian emperor let Osman and his archers loose on the enemies of his empire. Rewarding them with gold and land, Osman's little band of misfits grew and grew. Within just a few decades, their strength soon eclipsed his paymaster, the Eastern Roman Empire had no more land to give. Slave had become master. Osman was now the one calling the shots. From a dusty tribe of pagan vagabonds, they had become a power to be reckoned with. Osman would give his name to a new dynasty. A dynasty that would snowball into one of the greatest empires the world would ever see. The Ottomans. Swatting the puny Roman Empire aside, the Ottomans rapidly expanded vanquishing any enemy that defied them, be it Christian, Muslim, or pagan, all were brought low by Osman's war machine. The might of the Mongol bow fused with the fervour of jihad. Far from their Mongol ancestors who conquered for the sake of plunder, the Ottomans saw themselves as successors to the caliphates in the early days of Islam. When they conquered a city, they set up administration. 
A well-structured government was put in place and a steady stream of taxation flowed back to the Sultan. Christian Europe could only watch as, like a vine creeping up a wall, the Ottomans' borders crept closer and closer to Europe. Nowhere was the impact of this felt more profoundly than in the great state of Hungary. As the largest power in the Balkans, they found themselves on a collision course with the expanding state. And at this critical juncture, the bands that held the kingdom together were fraying. Successive kings had been put over the coals by their noblemen. The long-dead King Bela's nightmare had come to fruition. Hungary had slid into a kind of oligarchy where 60 or so influential families ran the show. They elected and deposed puppet kings on their whim, demanding from the ruler tax breaks, exemptions from military service, and land, always more land. According to author Paul Lenvai, by this point, the royal household, as in the king's house, owned only one-twentieth of all land, while these 60 families owned almost half. Without land, the king was powerless. If you can't make your nobles obey you, where are all your soldiers going to come from? Any decision made by the king, the nobles decreed must first be approved by them. With the king neutered, the gaze of the elite was cast down the social ladder, all the way to the lowest rung, the peasants. Most of these nobles owned huge farming estates, and for their farms to be as profitable as possible, stability was vital. The nobles passed laws that banned peasants from leaving their lord's estate. Now, if you had the misfortune of being born as a peasant, you, your children, and your children's children would be shackled to your designated patch of dirt for all eternity. As the nobles sucked Hungary dry like a thousand hungry leeches, the Ottomans had begun to nip at the borders of the kingdom. Fortresses teetered and the realm fell into civil war as two nobles made a grab for the throne. The kingdom verged on collapse. What it needed was a hero. Someone to pull it from the corrupt quagmire it had fallen into. And it would get one. Swaggering onto the stage came John Hunyadi, regent, general, and as the Pope would later christen him, Champion of Christ. Hunyadi likely came from humble origins. From the stories we have of his childhood, he was always focused and determined. A legend goes that while he was working as a squire for a lord, he accompanied him on a hunting party, you know, out into the woods to go kill some deer. And as this party's sneaking through the brush, a wolf bolts out in front of them and takes off running. The lord commanded his squire to chase down and capture the wolf. So Hunyadi follows the thing. He pursued the elusive creature with unwavering persistence, chasing it through the countryside, over hills, through forests, and even swimming across a river until the exhausted creature just succumbed. Returning to camp late into the night, soaked and muddy, the determined teenager presented the wolf's carcass at his master's feet. With a raised eyebrow, the Lord remarked, quote, This young man will go a long way. In his first few command roles, Hunyadi has a kind of Julius Caesar vibe. He was a leader who shared the hardships of his men. In the battle he'd be where the danger was greatest, and after the fighting was done you'd find him in the muddy campsites sharing a cup of cheap wine with his soldiers. The artwork that exists of him always has him decked out in heavy plate armour. Thin and waif-like, he sports a very long skinny moustache with a high hairline and stern facial expression. After proving he could hold his own in battle, Hunyadi was rewarded with a patch of land in Transylvania, modern-day Romania. But Hungary was still in the midst of a civil war, and the land was bristling with soldiers loyal to the other king. He was essentially presented with a garden overrun by brambles and weeds and told, hey, if you can clear them out, it's all yours. And he did just that, way quicker than anyone expected. As the flames of civil war scorched the rest of Hungary, Hunyadi's little patch was stable and prosperous. It thrived to such an extent that he took the extraordinary step of initiating war against the Ottomans, challenging their expanding power head-on. In 1441, Hunyadi beat back two Ottoman raiding parties that were headed into his lands, so the Sultan stepped things up, authorising an enormous 80,000-strong army to take down the audacious knight supposedly assuring his commander that the mere sight of his turban would send Hunyadi running. Once again, Hunyadi emerged victorious. His approach to warfare was novel, it was unique, and the Ottomans struggled to deal with it. 
Heavy cavalry flanked by light cavalry on the wings was fairly standard, but what made his army really stand out were his wagon forts. When a few thousand peasants join your army, and all they've got is an old spear and a family heirloom helmet, apart from being cannon fodder, they're not much use, right? Peasants typically arrived in mass, travelling in large wooden caravans, you know, wagons. So Hunyadi transformed these wagons into medieval armoured cars. He bulked them up with layers of wood and built-in firing slits down the sides. Arranging them in a circle, they became little wooden fortresses that were very difficult to assault head-on. With a few planks of wood, Hunyadi transformed the cannon fodder of his army into his secret weapon. Although he suffered setbacks, Hunyadi's continual defeating of much larger and better equipped Ottoman forces inspired the resistance of many other landholders across the Balkans. Hoping to bottle the lightning and capture the energy, the Pope began recruiting for a new crusade, one that was to be led by Hunyadi. Fanatical preachers gesticulated and rhapsodized in town squares and markets about the need to drive the heretical Ottomans out of Europe. This specific period, the 1440s in Eastern Europe, is one of my favorite in all history. It's the origin of stacks of Balkan heroes whose names are still huge in their countries today. In 1443, at the head of a multinational crusader army, Hunyadi vanquished an Ottoman coalition that was led by several commanders. One of those commanders was an Albanian named George Castriotti. The defeat would inspire Castriotti to defect from the Ottomans. Returning home to Albania, he would become Skanderbeg, one of the greatest military leaders of all time and the subject of our very first episode. Recommend you checking that one out. As the Ottomans were learning, reputation was a fickle thing. When an aura of invincibility is lost, it's not easy to get back. Shortly after, two Ottoman diplomats would arrive at the residence of a certain count deep in the forests of Transylvania. They were there to confirm the count's loyalty to the sultan. The count opened his door and greeted them warmly. As per Romanian custom, removing one's hat before entering someone's house is what's expected. And the Count, a certain Vlad Dracula, politely requested his guests to do so. But they declined, explaining that wearing their turbans was a religious requirement. The Count shrugged, as you wish. He then ordered his guards to nail the turbans to the men's heads, so they'd never have to remove them again. Drawing inspiration from the defiance shown by Hunyadi, the Count later had Ottoman diplomats impaled, roasted alive, and disemboweled. And these gruesome stories, exaggerated or not, gave rise to one of the greatest monsters of our time, Vlad the Impaler, Count Dracula. Over the next 10 years, Hunyadi's proactive campaigning kept the Ottomans guessing. As long as John Hunyadi lived, Central Europe was off-limits to the Ottomans. As enthusiasm for a new crusade waxed and waned, Hunyadi's bands of mercenaries, largely paid for out of his own pocket, were the bulwark of Europe's eastern flank. But, over in the Ottoman courts, there was a new man in charge. The old sultan had been replaced by his fiery young son, Mehmet II. Mehmet was perhaps the most ambitious sultan the Ottomans had ever seen. He had a vision of how he wanted to shape his empire, and nothing, not his family, not the law, not the Roman Empire, and certainly not Hungary, would stifle that ambition. Just two years into his reign, the young sultan had accomplished something that every Muslim ruler stretching back to the prophet himself had yearned for. He had conquered Constantinople. Under the thunder of his enormous cannons, the mighty walls that had defended the city for over 1,000 years crumbled. The new Rome was now in the hands of a Muslim power for the first time in history. Feeling invincible, Sultan Mehmet II, now known as the Conqueror, set his sights on Hungary, leading his army with the same cannons that had sealed the fate of the Roman Empire. In these cast-iron monstrosities, Mehmet had seen the future. He recognised earlier than others that gunpowder was as essential to an army as cavalry and infantry. If he could blast his way through Hungary, Western Europe was open to the Ottomans, open to Islam. In 1454, Mehmet marched his army into Serbia and crushed the last remaining Serb lord who'd refused to submit to him. Outside the fortress walls, he met Hunyadi, 
who'd rallied his forces and merged them with the battle-hardened remnants of the Serb army. Together, they inflicted a humiliating defeat on the young sultan, forcing him to retreat. Mehmet would not forget this humiliation. Hunyadi had beaten the father, and now he defeated the son. The loss was a wake-up call to the young sultan. Europe, as fractured as it was, could still pack a punch. Two years later, he set off again. Determined to finish off his father's rival, once and for all, he told a close friend that Hungary would fall in two months, and afterwards he'd be able to eat his dinner quietly in Buda. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Onyadi scrambled to prepare. He was hoping to receive reinforcements from the Albanian warlord Skanderbeg, but the Sultan had dispatched another army to Albania that kept him occupied. Hungarian nobles too were unhelpful. During the period between the wars, Hunyadi's heavy taxes had turned them against him. Now many of them were happy to hang him out to dry and let the Sultan have him. Meanwhile, the Hungarian king pretended that he had a urgent hunting expedition <laughs> he needed to leave for immediately. He fled his capital of Buda and hunkered down in neighbouring Austria. With Skanderbeg preoccupied, the nobles uncooperative, and the Hungarian king too scared to show himself, the burden of defending the entire kingdom fell on Hunyadi's shoulders. In the final days before the battle, his numbers swelled with tens of thousands of peasants. The peasants had been rallied by a travelling preacher in preparation for a new crusade. Sick of having their land ravaged by Ottoman raiders, their morale was high. And when their landlords tried to force them back onto their farms, well, they were told exactly where to shove that order. It was a motley group, for sure. 20,000 or so men armed with cudgels, staves and slings against 60,000 of Mehmet's professional soldiers. But what they lacked in weapons, they made up in spirit. The preacher had implored them that their eternal soul depended on this victory. Both Hunyadi and Mehmet understood that the fate of the war hinged on the fortress of Belgrade, the modern-day capital of Serbia. Situated at the confluence of two rivers, if Mehmet could take Belgrade, Ottoman power would be secured in the troublesome region. And Hunyadi knew it too. Hunyadi and his peasant army marched with all haste for the city, but by the time he'd arrived, bobbing Ottoman tents dotted the landscape as far as the eye could see. The Sultan was already preparing his cannons, and crucially, his navy had blocked the rivers, preventing further supplies from getting into Belgrade. Undeterred, Hunyadi hastily assembled a makeshift navy, made up of transports and galleys, anything that could float. Under the cover of darkness, his shabby navy silently floated towards the Ottoman flotilla. By the time Mehmet's sailors realised what was happening, Hunyadi's peasants were already on them, 
Echoes of the dead and dying rang throughout the night, and supposedly the river ran blood red for miles downstream. With the blockade broken, Hunyadi could resupply the city. Mehmet had lost the initiative at sea, so on land he pushed harder. Day and night his cannons roared, pounding the walls into mush. These were very early cannons that were prone to cracking and misfiring or straight up exploding, so a rolling artillery barrage like this was as much a psychological weapon as a physical one. Inside the fortress, the church bells rung every day at noon, reminding the Christians to pray for their salvation. Large gaps began to appear in the wall, and Mehmet ordered a general assault. His elite troops proving their worth, they overwhelmed the defenders. As the troops poured in, Ottoman flags began to appear on the outer walls. Just as everything seemed lost, Hunyadi ordered sulphur-coated bundles of wood thrown from the inner walls. As the sulphur was lit, an enormous inferno engulfed the advancing Janissary army. The fire split the attackers, half were pushed inside and half were pushed back out. Cut off from reinforcements, the peasant crusaders rushed the forward group and butchered them. The cheers of the Christians intermingled with the hideous screams of burning Ottoman troops. Unable to find a way for his men to pass through the flames, Mehmet ordered a retreat. The next day, some of Hunyadi's peasants noticed a section of the Ottoman siege camp had been left vacant. A couple of men snuck out and began snatching up whatever treasure the soldiers had left behind. A little fight broke out as a couple of the camp guards returned, but to everyone's surprise, the peasants held their own. Mehmet dispatched additional troops to finish them off, but again, the peasants squared off and beat them back. Hunyadi, though he'd ordered no one to leave the fortress, seized the opportunity. The little skirmish rapidly snowballed into a colossal battle. At the head of his militia, a firebrand preacher charged into the clash, bellowing out to his followers, quote, The Lord who made the beginning will take care of the end. The clash of steel echoed through the air as Hunyadi's forces clashed fiercely with the Ottoman army. The peasant soldiers fought with a fervor born out of desperation, their makeshift weapons striking down seasoned Ottoman warriors. As the Ottomans gave ground, the Hungarians came across their deserted cannons and turned the iron beasts back on them. Mehmet ordered his men to retake the cannon at all costs, but Hunyadi did not give an inch. Under a hail of grape shot and cannon fire from their own cannons, the Sultan's best troops, his Janissaries, fell in droves. Beside himself with fury, Mehmet ordered the Janissaries to advance and retake the artillery. But even these men had their limits. They refused to obey. Only when the Sultan himself was shot through the thigh with an arrow did he finally concede the loss. The victory was miraculous. Genuinely, it must have seemed like a miracle. Again, Hunyadi had been pitted against the endless resources of the Ottoman Empire and came out victorious. He had given them such a thrashing that an Ottoman army of this size would not return again for 70 years. It's easy to see why this victory is still celebrated annually by Hungarians today. Europe was jubilant. The ringing of church bells at noon became a tradition that is still practiced in many cities of Europe today. The Pope declared Hunyadi a champion of Christ, calling him one of the greatest men to have ever lived. Hungarians were hailed as the most noble of all Europeans, the bulwark of Christendom. Talk of crusades were renewed, and in the alehouses of Europe, people spoke of retaking Constantinople, maybe even Jerusalem. But all was not well. As the victory parade continued through Belgrade, the man of the hour was suspiciously absent. The 50-year-old regent was bedridden, tossing and turning, gripped by bouts of sweating and fevers that he couldn't shake. The putrefying bodies and open wounds of the battlefields had brought with them the plague which John Hunyadi had caught. Just one month after his greatest victory, he was dead. John Hunyadi, though never a king, had earned a reputation that resonated throughout Europe. There was scarcely a ruler who hadn't heard of him. Against the relentless Ottoman Empire, Europe had been like a concrete dam, patched up again and again by one man, and now he was gone. Before his body was even cold, parts of Hungary began to break away. Without his mailed fist to hammer them back into place, 
Nobles found their voice and clamoured for more tax breaks and more land. Again, the fabric of Hungary seemed ready to rip. In the wake of the childless old king's death, rival groups and nobles agreed on a compromise to end the civil war. As part of the compromise, the last surviving son of the great John Hunyadi would be their new king, a 14-year-old boy named Matthias Corvinus, sometimes called the Raven King, as Corvin means raven in Latin. The teen's short life had mostly been spent at a Romanian court where some of the most learned men passed through. And through this revolving door of intellectuals, Corvinus soaked up knowledge, becoming fluent in most of European languages by his mid-teens. Nourished by the tales of his father's brilliance, Matthias internalised his legacy. He took the throne with the help of his uncle, but just two weeks into the job, he dismissed him. He decided he didn't need any help running the country. The boy knew who his father was and who he was. Driven and self-assured, he would usher in another Hungarian golden age, and he would do it with or without his nobles' help. Unlike his father, whose talents were solely on the battlefield, Corvinus was intelligent, charming, and likeable. There were quite a few portraits painted of him, so we have quite a good idea of what he looked like. He has a large face, a sloping brow, and long, dark hair. And just for that little nod to the ancients, a floral wreath balanced atop his head. He was soon married to a high-born Italian teenager named Beatrice. When his new wife arrived at the king's court, she bought a little slice of Italy with her. And young Matthias found himself swept off his feet. Not necessarily by Beatrice herself, but by her culture. The young king became intoxicated with the Italian Renaissance. Renaissance, which means rebirth, was an era of rediscovery. Italians were turning their back on the old superstitions and stuffy church rules in favour of classical art and literature. Ancient tomes from classical Greece or ancient Rome were plucked from the shelves and studied with fascination. Statues of Dionysus, Apollo and Hercules dotted the streets of Italy and wealthy families employed translators to resurrect the lost poetry of Plato, Archimedes, and Homer. Sprawling red brick villas, theology, law, medicine, the king was soon dizzy with Renaissance fever. And caught up in this fervour, Matthias encouraged his nobles to get with the program. And even though a few did and followed suit, most of them despised the Italian influence that was permeating the Hungarian court. They questioned the abandonment of Hungarian culture, sarcastically wondering if they were all to become Italian. Though his nobles might grind their teeth, the king was unbothered, spending enormous sums translating, binding, and reprinting ancient books. The stack of books became a chest, the chest became several, and before he knew it, the collection spanned several rooms. His library became known as the Biblioteca Corviana, the biggest library in Europe, apart from the Pope's. When we talk about old libraries, you're probably picturing a bunch of old Bibles in that off-camo green you see at thrift stores for a couple of bucks, right? Well, this was so much more than that. With the fall of Constantinople, ancient, fragile manuscripts that had once rested in the great city since time immemorial were strewn throughout Europe like trading cards. These irreplaceable works, some of which were the only copies in existence, found a new home in the Biblioteca Corviana where they were catalogued, translated, and archived. Something like a iCloud backup of the 15th century. One man who visited the sprawling halls was overcome by the sheer variety of topics. Writing of his visit, he said, quote, I saw such a plenty of Greek and Hebrew volumes, which King Matthias purchased with immeasurable money after the fall of Byzantium and many other Greek cities, releasing them from their shackles as if they'd been slaves. As King Matthias and Queen Beatrice walked the ornate halls of the library, it was akin to being inside a beehive. In a flurry of activity, dozens of scribes hunched over desks, murmuring quietly to themselves. An ancient manuscript to their left and a fresh sheet of parchment to their right, with each day they rediscovered lost medical techniques, banned pagan philosophy and forbidden Islamic arithmetic. For the first time in a thousand years, Europe was alive again. Hunyadi was Europe's new Renaissance king, but he was also, as his nobles liked to point out, an outsider. 
His father, John Hunyadi, was probably of Transylvanian stock, and xenophobia ran hot in Hungary, particularly among the elite. This was important because, apart from Matthias himself, there were a couple of other people who had a claim to the Hungarian throne, and one of them actually possessed it, as in they held the physical crown of Hungary. According to Hungarian law, a ruler could not become king until he held this specific crown, which left Corvinus technically squatting on the throne. As he worked to clean up his realm, trouble began to brew on Hungary's western border. The Ottomans bordered Hungary in the east, but to the west was the land of the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire was a kind of German confederation of microstates that spanned all across Central Europe. That's not a great explanation, but it'll do. Anyway, the man in charge of them was the same guy who had his greasy fingers wrapped around Corvinus's crown. His name was Emperor Frederick III, but behind his back, his nobles called him Arch Sleepyhead Frederick III. Isn't, isn't that such a quintessentially German insult? Arch Sleepyhead. I love that. How did he get that name, you might ask? Well, as someone who met him observed, quote, The emperor aimed to rule the world but wanted to do so without leaving his chair. Slow and entitled, Frederick had the habit of signing any document with a mysterious acronym, A-E-I-O-U. Everyone always asked him what it meant, but thinking he was pretty clever, Frederick refused to tell. It stood for Austria est imperari orbi universo. Austria will rule the world. Sounds like something you do as a 10-year-old writing in your little secret diary, doesn't it? A bit of a loner and clearly a little odd, if you met the arch sleepyhead at a party, you probably wouldn't remember him. Or maybe you would, because he usually wouldn't shut up about astrology. From battles to marriage consummation, Frederick set his calendar against the cosmos. But as you know, stars take many years to align, and because of this, Frederick had learnt to be very patient. Looking over at the smouldering Hungarian kingdom about to rip itself apart with another civil war, the arch sleepyhead probably thought, let the new guy exhaust himself, I've got his crown, I can wait as long as it takes. Corvinus didn't have that luxury. All the books in the world were nothing if he didn't have that crown. I'm sure you're probably thinking, but what about the Ottomans? Surely they're not just sitting quietly. Well, you're right. With Corvinus focused on his succession, the Ottomans were finishing off any resistance between their empire and the Hungarian kingdom. They were besieging one of the last independent kingdoms left, Bosnia. In desperation, the Bosnian king reached out to Corvinus for assistance, but as his troops were tied down in the west, although he wanted to help, he couldn't scramble an army in time. Mehmet the Conqueror marched in and easily defeated the Bosnians. Corvinus had lost his last buffer state. Ottoman lands now directly bordered Hungary. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, 
and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. The dam that Corvinus's father had maintained was leaking and about to burst. Once a distant threat, the Ottomans were now lapping at the doors of Hungary. The time for action was now. But the king knew as soon as he moved troops from his western border, Frederick would invade. He was trapped between a rock and a hard place. He could only defend one border at a time. With the Pope as mediator, Corvinus and Frederick made terms. The arch sleepyhead handed over the Hungarian crown in exchange for some cash. The Pope wanted these two powerful magnates to play nice with each other. He was hoping to get a crusade started and wanted these guys on the same team. But there was just too much bad blood. Before the ink had even dried, Frederick gave a little wink and a nudge to his raiders, who continued to raid into Hungary. Corvinus accused him of breaking the treaty and Frederick said something like, hey, I can't control every single man in my empire, can I? The arch sleepyhead wasn't trustworthy. The scroll of parchment they'd signed meant virtually nothing. So Corvinus took things into his own hands. He chose the only option he had left and made peace with the Ottomans. He may have felt backed into a corner on this one, but his decision was not popular. To the rest of Europe, it was acknowledging that Islam was here to stay, legitimizing its conquests on European soil, something his father would have never done. With the East secure, he threw all his weight against the West. Emperor Frederick and his puppet rulers had stirred up trouble in Hungary for too long. If the emperor wanted a war, he'd give him one. But there was another problem. Since the days of John Hunyadi, roaming bands of mercenaries had plagued Hungary's northwest. Paid by the state's enemies, like the emperor, to cause trouble and plunder, these well-trained soldiers, without a war to fight, had turned the region into a no-go zone. Corvinus approached the bandits with an intriguing offer. Join him. Not just for a battle or a campaign, forever. He wanted them to be armed and assembled, ready to act at a moment's notice. He wanted them to be his army. The mercenaries agreed, and why wouldn't they? These were troubled times, and Corvinus was offering them permanent, stable employment. If he kept up his side of the deal, they'd keep up theirs. With a handshake, Corvinus transformed these bandits into an army. They would come to be known, rather ominously, as the Black Army either due to the colour of their armour or, more likely, because of the surname of one of their first captains. The Black Army would be one of the first standing armies in Europe since the fall of the Roman Empire nearly a thousand years ago. Soon, the very mention of the Black Army would have peasants' knees rattling. These guys were brutal and merciless, but man, did they get the job done. Matthias's court biographer described them, saying, quote, In no other nation can one find soldiers who bear heat, cold, work, labour and effort so lightly, carry out tasks so willingly and head into battle and death more joyfully. They are braver and more persevering than Spartans. With the troubled region beginning to recover, Hunyadi led the Black Army across the border. Let's see how you like it, Frederick. The invasion was Hunyadi's first test in combat. He'd spent days immersed studying the translated works of Caesar's Gallic Wars, Alexander the Great's invasion of Persia, and Hannibal's Punic War, but on the battlefield itself, he was fairly green. Very quickly, though, he proved he was his father's son. Bohemia, modern Chechia, fell quickly, and over the next few years, he pushed deeper into Frederick's kingdom. The dawdling emperor was not ready for a war where things moved so quickly. Citadel after citadel fell to Corvinus, and soon his army surrounded the very capital of Frederick's empire, Vienna. Frederick looked to the cosmos, but even his astrologists couldn't see a way out of this one. He and his men fled Vienna, and Matthias entered in triumph. Not a drop of blood was spilt, instead he bought in wagons of food for the besieged city, a nice little PR move. With no other options, the emperor was forced to the negotiating table, forced to formally recognise Corvinus's conquests. The Raven King had set out to secure his western border and instead had annexed a swathe of new territories. The arch-sleepyhead had been put to bed. Now for the Ottomans. 
From the snow-capped hills of Austria to the dark forests of Transylvania and the shores of the Black Sea, all bowed to the Raven King. Hungary had reached its largest territorial extent in history. But it had come at a cost. The invasion had drained the kingdom's treasury. Now the government had to pay for the Black Army and the garrison of castles in new territory. Corvinus found himself effectively paying for two standing armies. He needed cash, and lots of it. Clawing back many of the privileges and tax breaks the nobles had extracted from weaker kings, his income tripled to almost 750,000 florins. The nobles, lacking the muscle to defy him because of his black army, were enraged. Many of them were on the brink of rebellion. And the peasants, who often found the king's tax burden forced down onto them, were equally livid. But even with all this new revenue, Corvinus still struggled to pay the bills, drowning in debt brought upon by his quest for glory. His money woes began to transform him from the Pope's darling to its harshest critic. Over and over, he wrote to the pontiff, effectively telling him, look, you want us to defend Europe from the Ottomans? Can't do it alone. Need money. His marriage, too, was on the rocks. In the beginning, Beatrice and Matthias had been... Well, I don't know if I'd say they were in love, but they were definitely good to each other. But now, as the couple posed for another portrait to line their library walls, it was obvious something was missing. An heir. Try as she might, over the years of marriage, no matter how many fertility shrines the queen visited, she wasn't able to conceive. And it led to a rift forming between the two. Matthias, now in his early 40s, began grooming his bastard son, John, to succeed him. Meanwhile, Beatrice, in what can only be described as a fantasy, raised up her own candidate, her nephew, to a throne that didn't belong to her. A weird kind of cold war started where husband and wife were courteous to each other in person, but schemed behind the other's backs to push their own plans for succession in private. Beatrice held her head high at ceremonies where lords were made to swear before Corvinus's bastard son. Meanwhile, Corvinus humoured Beatrice, attending the outlandish and costly ceremonies that she'd organised for her nephew. A fun fact, the nephew, Ippolito, was the brother of Isabella d'Este, who we covered in our Sack of Rome episode. Anyway, when his wife was out of earshot, Matthias wrote letter after letter to her family in Italy, urging her father to rein her in. Quote, The Hungarian people are capable of killing up until the last man rather than submit to the government of a woman. We must add, in all frankness, that the Queen is scarcely loved by our subjects, which we realise with grief, but the Queen does not try to gain their affections. Patrice had never made much of an effort to integrate into Hungarian society. She came in with her Italian retinue, Italian painters and Italian food, and had been lucky enough to find a husband willing to indulge her. But that was during the honeymoon of their marriage, now the queen was finding herself increasingly isolated. Matthias's popularity was lagging, and his courtiers scowled and whispered about her as they passed her in the palace. Even her operas and fancy dress balls didn't cheer her up. It was as if, overnight, the golden light that had shone in their kingdom had shifted, leaving her in the dark. The stress of their personal life aged the couple prematurely. Patrice was a far cry from the lithe, vivacious and bubbly teenager who'd arrived at the courts originally. At just 28 years old, she was arthritic, overweight and regularly bedridden for days on end. Actually, Matthias wasn't that much better. At just 41 years of age, the rich Italian food he loved so much had taken its toll. High blood pressure and regular fevers forced him to bow out of state affairs for days on end. Even when he could move, he was plagued by gout and often needed to be carried on a litter due to the intense pain in moving his legs. The end was near. And though, in bouts of lucidity, the Raven King promised another crusade, everyone knew it wasn't going to happen. For the time being, his black army kept the Hungarian plains free of the Ottomans, but it was clear that the king was approaching his end. After recovering from a particularly nasty fever, Corvinus seems to have had the same revelation. Everything he worked for, everything his father worked for, balanced precariously on his sickly body. He dedicated his fading mind to succession. Hemorrhaging money on these expensive border forts, he decided to open up negotiation with his old rival, Emperor Frederick. 
The fact that his son, John, was a bastard complicated things greatly. Many treaties Matthias had signed were based on him having a legitimate heir, which John wasn't. In desperation, Corvinus agreed to return all the lands he'd conquered if the emperor could overlook this issue. The ever-patient emperor must have been ecstatic. As usual, his indecision had paid off. Another problem solved by doing nothing. A-E-I-O-U. Damn, it was good to be the emperor. As their treaty neared towards the final stages of negotiation, Corvinus slipped into another fever. This time he didn't wake up. King Matthias Corvinus, the Raven King, died on the 6th of April 1490. He was just 47 years old. As his queen sobbed over his lifeless body, the question on everyone's lips, from the Ottoman Sultan to the court nobles, was what would happen now? As much as he had tried to fix everything towards the end, the fact of the matter was that Matthias Corvinus left a grand kingdom teetering on the edge of total collapse. Despite visitors' amazement at the glistening halls and palaces, the government's treasury was completely empty, save for a few loan slips. The population was more divided than ever before. The lords hated the nobles, the nobles hated the peasants, and the peasants, well, they hated just about everyone. Worst of all, the Ottomans had a new sultan. Right now, he was called Suleiman, just Suleiman. But soon the world would know him by another name, Suleiman the Magnificent, one of the brightest and most able sultans to ever sit upon the throne. And I bet you can guess where he was heading first. And that's where we pulled the plug this week. Did you enjoy Hungary's Golden Age? I hope so, because it's not coming back. The next episode is one long slide into the muck, and you're not going to want to miss it. I'm sure King Matthias had a secretary to remind him of important events, but as you probably don't have that luxury, why not subscribe to our mailing list? If you do that, I can send you an email every time we release a new episode. To do that, you just need to go to our website, anthologyofheroespodcast.com, and you should get a pop-up to enter your name and email. We also regularly share supporting content relating to episodes, memes, historical artwork, and interesting archaeological finds on our Instagram and Facebook page. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash anthology of heroes podcast, or one word. And our Instagram is at anthology of heroes, or one word. Last but certainly not least, if you listen regularly, you might consider becoming a patron. Patrons shout me a few dollary dues a month, which helps me cover the cost of maintaining this show. In return, they get early releases, ad free episodes, and the opportunity to have their voice in the show. If you're interested, you can find a link to our patron in the episode description. Speaking of which, our generous patrons are Claudia, Tom, Alan, Caleb, Malcolm, Seth, Angus, Phil, Lisa, and Jim. Thanks a lot, guys. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.